0: Hello and welcome to the Wigtown Book Festival Podcast. I'm your host, Peggy Hughes. We hope you enjoyed our daily stargazing episodes in the Galloway Forest Dark Sky Park for the Big Bang Festival with the wonderful Biosphere Dark Sky Ranger, Elizabeth Tyndall. If not, fear not, you can catch up with them all again on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. As an audio finale for Big Bang, we present an interview with Robert Sherman, a man of many talents whose stellar writing career spans theatre, television, audio drama, novels and short fiction. We discuss Rob's forthcoming novel, a Doctor Who target novelisation of Dalek, an episode also written by Rob that many Whovians will fondly remember from 2005. We also talk about Rob's book, We All Hear Stories in the Dark. A titanic triptych weighing in at a mighty three volumes and nearly 2,000 pages, it is a thing of intricate and labyrinthine beauty, a choose-your-own-adventure which no two readers will ever encounter in precisely the same way. There are fairy tales and myths, adventure stories and horror stories. Some are funny, and some are moving. Some of them are frightening, and most of them are very, very strange. We reflect on how this epic act of love and grief came to be, on the joys of reading, literary adaptation, fan culture and the pleasures and pains of being a writer. I think it must be a really extraordinary time to be launching a book. And you know, obviously in in my line of work, working with writers a lot and, and it's been very different for lots of people. But how is it for you, Rob? Dalek is about to officially hit the shelves. How's it been? It's
1: been a very odd experience doing Dalek, actually. I think because I never thought it would ever happen. I mean, I grew up in the 80s, just reading and rereading all my Doctor Who target novelizations. You know, I couldn't go on a holiday with my parents in the back of the car, unless I took about a dozen with me, which I would then still be rereading. And I'd be making notes over And I mean, and I've I've got my complete collection of them now. And and, and it, it was my way into Doctor Who, which is a show that I do love very much, but I was too scared to watch for a very, very long time. And when I actually worked on the TV show 15 years ago or so, lots of fans would say, you know, would you ever do a target version of it? And I'd say, no, of course I won't. I mean, it's a ridiculous idea because the whole point of those books back when I was a kid was that you couldn't get access to those TV episodes unless you read the books and now of course, Doctor Who is everywhere. I mean, it's it's really everywhere, isn't it? I mean, you, you mm. can't. It's on iPlayer. It's on Netflix. I mean, it seems to me that I can't. I mean, sometimes I get almost annoyed to see it pop up. And I think, <laughs> oh, there's the episode I wrote again. Um, and so the idea that anybody actually would want it want it to be told again seemed impossible. And about two or three years ago, Target started again, and Stephen Moffat and Russell T Davis contributed novels upon some of their scripts and even as they were doing it I thought I don't understand why you're doing it and then I read them and I thought they were fantastic and they were fantastic in part because they weren't the episodes on television at all but in a funny and hopefully not too pretentious way they were sort of kind of in discussion with those episodes they were sort of going back through the years and reacting to what they'd once done and then, trying to find different ways of telling it and putting a sort of different spin on it, arguing with the text and I mm. thought, well well that 's my way in So when I was asked to do this, and I was really thrilled because there were so many of them, about one hundred and fifty odd new Doctor Who stories, so to be invited to actually you know um, contribute so early on was Really actually quite quite humbling you know simply because because the, the odds against it are so great it, it was it was like trying to talk back to the writer I was fifteen years ago it was that sort of having a conversation with my thirty five year old self <laughs> from the point of view of now being this rather grumbling fifty year old and saying to him. Why did you do that? I mean, what on earth is the point of that scene? And why is this character not having any more motivation? And sort of fighting him a bit and arguing. And, and, and it, was, it, was, it was tremendous
0: fun, that. I bet. I mean, that was, that was a, something I wanted to ask you, Rob. I mean, how do you create the conditions with which to be able to argue with your younger self? What did you find out about your younger writer self as well in this process? It's very fascinating to me. I thought he was quite
1: nervous. Which I was. I mean, I'll be honest, I think when I wrote the TV episode, I hadn't done much television. I was brought on as an act of faith, I think, by the production team, because I'd written an audio adventure that they liked. And they thought I could use that as the basis of it. And I'd done some television, so they thought they would, you know, shepherd me along and... I was scared. I mean, I, I spent maybe nine months writing and rewriting and rewriting that script because that's what you do for television. Constantly frightened I was going to be sacked. Oh. Um, and, and, and being very nearly sacked a couple of times. I, I think that the fact that about halfway through the process, the BBC lost the rights to have Daleks at all. Oh. And, I, and I remember having a phone call when I thought I'd finished. And I had a phone call and I, I was in the pub with Stephen Moffat who was about to start writing his one. And I got the call to tell me, I need to write another script, tool, s- script from scratch because we have to now shelve that. And could I do it maybe in two weeks? And at all times thinking, well, this is when they're gonna take me off the show because they'll need someone who's more experienced to write a script quicker. So going back to it, I sort of found watching it, I could sense my nervousness. I could sense that, a sort of eagerness to please, and a reluctance to do anything which might annoy my uh, producers. I decided, therefore, when I went back to it, to be a bit bolder. I Mm. thought, oh, these bits aren't quite fierce enough. Yeah, and I I sort of felt very, very sorry for that younger version. I I sort of wished he just enjoyed himself a bit more at times. Mm. Because he's only writing. I mean, (laughs) you know, it's just a thing which I sort of find I'm growing into the older I get. However bad some of the things I've written up, I've never killed anybody as a result of it. So I should have been maybe just a little bit more, um, just taking a little bit more joy in the process.
0: Mm. Yeah. That, that said, I suppose, part of the nervousness, I would imagine, it sort of comes from the, the responsibility of dealing, not just with the Who kind of universe, but with the Daleks. I mean, they're, and I'm someone, by the way, who, Doctor Who wasn't on TV. I'm, I was the generation that just missed. Oh, yes, um, of course. It was was off air. So, I mean, that must have been and must still be interesting to deal with that kind of the fans, you know.
1: It is odd. I mean, this sounds like an exaggeration. If I tell friends, they still think I'm exaggerating, but I don't think a day goes by when I don't get a message or a tweet um, or an email about my Dalek episode from somebody. And it's 15 years. I mean, I, I'm, I'm really not complaining. Um, it's a wonderful thing. But sometimes you do begin to say, I mean, it's when people write to you and they say things like, so what do you do nowadays? And I say, I'm still a writer. I just don't <laughs> do anymore. Yeah. And, and, and there'd been a sense in which I was trying to write other things, almost kind of being quite grumpy about the Dalek thing. And so when the commission came to do this, I had maybe... I think if I'd been told I was going to get it a day or so before, I'd probably have thought I've spent years trying to sort of draw the line between myself (laughs) and those pepper pots. But I was so thrilled to get it, I just didn't even hesitate. It's odd. It does haunt you. And there is a responsibility for the fact that they are the most iconic thing about Doctor Who beyond the TARDIS and that police box. I mean, they they are that sort of recognisable image. I must admit, when I was writing the episode, I would sometimes be quite jealous of my other fellow writers who were doing their own stories without having to worry about all that extra pressure. But now of course it's, it's that wonderful thing that if I, I don't know, back in the days when we could go to parties, if I went to a, a wonderful cocktail party, let's, let's pretend I've ever been to one, um, <laughs> where somebody would ask me what, what, I, what I do for a living and I'd say I'm, I, I'm a writer and they'd never have heard of my books but they've heard of Doctor Who mm. and then they say mm. oh which one did you write? I can actually say something and they'll remember it because it was the Dalek one, which therefore is automatically memorable. It's a lovely thing.
0: The term is the absolute banger, really. I mean, you know, of all the ones that could have been done. I wonder... I I, I was
1: so proud. And they did such a great job on it as well. Because I had to... I hadn't seen it in years when I came to adapt it. Because you don't want to go back and realise it was rubbish. Mm, And you you can also have that half belief that unless you actually get confronted by it, that maybe it's as good as people tell you it is. Yeah. I had to watch it so often when I was preparing to novelise it. Yeah, and it is very good. I mean, and not because of me. It, it, it's, it's really well acted and produced and it, and it really stands up 15 years on.
0: So I, I was and am very,
1: very proud of it.
0: Yeah. Having just rewatched it for this conversation, I'd completely agree. It was, it's, it's brilliant. I mean, but on that note, you're saying it's well acted or the, you know, the, 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 the various huge team of people who, who, who make a TV sort of program. How is yeah. that different then when, when with a novel, I'm guessing it was very much you, you and the laptop? Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, that was actually the whole joy
1: of it. I mean, I wrote to them, to, the BBC, to BBC Books. And when I was trying to prepare whether I was going to do this or not, and I said, look, I've got a few things that I might just change and develop and, and just alter completely what's going on. And they said, yeah, fine.
0: Uh-huh. And I said,
1: so, how you, so you, you've no concern that I might change whatever I want. They said, do whatever you wish. Wow. And given that total freedom meant that I wasn't, when I went and sat down and wrote a, my opening chapter, which was about a small imaginary boy flying a kite upon a vanishing hill, which, as you will realise, hasn't got much to do with a sort of base in Utah. But it was also my trying to say to myself, let's therefore be as inventive as I can be and not feel constrained by this. And it it meant that I could go back into the episode and work out entire different destinies for the characters and backgrounds for them and give them sudden chapters which would be, Sort of ironic takes upon what their fates in the episode would be and it was yeah it was great fun that and the fact that I was doing it totally on my own this time felt quite freeing. I it, mean it, it sounds like, like, a, like a complaint and it isn't. I mean part of the nature of TV is that you're working with lots and lots of people all the time and they will be giving you notes and they and, and, it, and it's their episode as much as it's your episode and this was my kind of attempt to own it to say, well, I'm now going to do the version that I can look at and say, well, this version is now truly me. And so much about writing always feels like taking possession of things. And I wanted to possess my own story properly at last, I think.
0: I wonder it, I just saw, just before we, we started to chat, um a, a tweet from someone who I guess has, has already had a read. And they said, you know, it's shone a light into the universe of, a, of an episode that I already love.
1: Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah, which is lovely. I'm, I'm very proud of that. Yeah.
0: Mm, and I wonder how far that's your intention from the outset when you are sort of adding dimensions to something that's already so loved and in the world. What was your approach if, from the very beginning of, you know, what you could do with what was already there.
1: Well it is a danger because it's that awful thing where you have the temptation to fit down with things. It's funny I was going back through my attic just before lockdown hit again and I was finding all these short stories I'd written when I was 14 years old and 15 years old. I'd seen how I'd ruined them through the fact that I then couldn't ever leave them alone, you know, and, and there were different drafts of them where I'd be adding things. And it was obvious in the middle of the night, I thought I put a, a really extra descriptive bit I wanted to put in. And it always took away from the reason it had been at one point quite good. And it, it was a reminder to me doing this that I mustn't be too self-indulgent about it. And though it was tempting to go in and say, aha, I'm going to surprise everybody and make it completely different. I also realized that I had to, find a way of not disappointing the people who do really enjoy the episode as it stands. It had to be sort of revealing new, interesting information to them without appearing to be sort of mocking them because I was going to distort it and take away what it was that they'd liked in the first place. It's funny. I mean, there are certain sequences. There's a sequence at the very beginning of the episode where the Doctor finds a Cyberman head. And the fans, and to and speak as a fan, love that because it's a, another call to the past. And writing the novel, I just thought, there's no way I can justify in a book which is trying to build up the idea for meeting one of his old foes, why well, there's another old foe <laughs> in the museum. And it was a great moment on the TV and they made it work really, really nicely. And I cut it and mm. I felt guilty because I know that for some people that's their favorite bit Mm -hmm. and it became a process where I would say if I'm cutting something which I know is going to be someone's favorite bit I have to make up for it elsewhere, I have to give Mm -hmm. them other treats to discover where they'll be excited by some other call back to the past or Mm -hmm. uh, some new information. Mm -hmm. So it was about trying to make sure that I didn't spoil anyone's fun and, and I did go into it thinking actually that as well that if I did the book very badly at least it wouldn't erase the episode. I mean, mm-hmm. People would say, well, I don't like what it's done there, mm-hmm. and then they'd go mm-hmm. back and watch Chris Eccleston and Billy Piper. <laughs> so <laughs> it wouldn't change it too much, but it had to also feel like it was a different experience.
0: Yes.
1: It's a strange sort of balancing act, really.
0: Hmm. I bet. Yeah, it's a grave, both a grave responsibility and a, and a balancing act. How far do you think it's? I suppose obviously it's possible to be both a fan and the writer. What are those different impulses for you? Because you're clearly a fan, and and you know.
1: Oh yeah, it's hard actually. I mean, because I, I think the impulse when you work on the show is to suddenly deny your fan credentials because it makes you feel a bit like you're a child. So. I think the impulse that a lot of us had when we were writing our episodes was, I think, maybe to sort of deny the things that gave us a little childhood thrill. And it was actually Russell who would say to us in those meetings, why are you doing that? There's nothing wrong with actually revealing to all of us that you actually are in love with this material. So it, it, it's odd. I mean, there is always, I think, a danger that you kind of go through a phase where you despise the things that you love when you're a child because they make you look as if you're childish. They make you look as if you're weak and mm. not to be taken seriously. I mean, I, I do know Doctor Who writers who have been through that process where they've got the job to work on the show and they find themselves sort of, again, arguing with their younger selves and wanting to seem as if they can be taken seriously as a writer. I mean, I, I've been at conventions where I've, I've known people who have been fans since they were teenagers. But on stage, they kind of profess largely an ignorance of the show around them. As if this was a professional gig only. And I do wonder why, in a way. I mean, I I think that I can't hide the fact that Doctor Who is a part of my life every day. I mean, I didn't want it to be in my 20s. I'd kind of outgrown it and and the show got taken off. And I, I went through years and years where I would probably have just tucked it to one side and pretended it hadn't been such a huge deal for me. But Doctor Who was actually really, for a while, my entire childhood. It it, it was a tremendous obsession. And so at this stage where I've been able to contribute a small bit to its history, I see that only as a joy, really. It's sometimes hard when you're writing anything to get the emotion of the act of writing into it because writing, let's face it, is a pain in the neck half the time. <laughs> but, when I, but when I was writing Dalek, I mean, I went into it and said, I have to communicate all the way through this, that my 12-year-old version of me would find this unbelievable that I was doing this. Mm. And I have to get that into everyday's bit of writing so that whenever you read it, you never feel that the writer himself isn't running around the, the room saying, oh my word, this is what I'd have, you know, I mean, this is something I would have, prayed to do and mm. I probably did actually pray to do this <laughs> <laughs> yeah I can say that I mean again up in the attic I mentioned I found a, a, a novelization of a Doctor Who story a Peter Davison story which I had novelized in the hope that one day I could have a target book out oh, wow. I think when I was again 13 years old and it's an entire book I mean I, it's probably about 40,000 words it's about how oh. And I tried that hard because I really wanted one day to have a target book out. So the thing is, it's, it's a certain strength, really, to be taken.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think that's, that's right. It's, it's a vulnerable thing, I think, to be a fan. But I was speak, speaking to, to someone else about their book, uh, Sarah Baum, who's an Irish writer, and she was just saying that when you make things, it's not her her idea, but in a book that she was talking about on the podcast, she's saying that to make something with resentment or with anything other than enthusiasm or curiosity it it comes you can tell or even if even if the if the sort of audience or the reader uh, can't tell that you can tell you the writer can tell comes
1: out in part i mean because my background was working in theater and uh, and as a director and you begin to recognize when you're working around actors when the actors start getting bored of it and Mm. the audience don't necessarily know fully that the actors are bored because their job is to disguise But it does come across and it's about trying to remind them that they have to find that initial excitement again or else people won't be excited back. And I took that when I began writing prose. I try to remember that. I I try to remember that reading can be a chore. I mean, I, I really do adore reading and I collect books, but there are times that I'm reading a book and I'm thinking, did this writer actually enjoy writing this page? Because I'm getting nothing of of any sense of of, of saying, oh my God, I'm writing a book. It's going to be published. It's going to be in bookshops. And the idea that that at any point you just say, as you're writing, oh, it's another 5,000 words to the end of this chapter. And then something exciting might be allowed to happen. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, 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 mean, I, I think that's, I think Sarah's absolutely right. I, I think you can always tell and I think that it's so hard to write anyway, that you need the impetus of reminding yourself that there's some sort of privilege to be allowed to do this in the first place. That There are people out there, my father would have loved to have been a writer and and, and he wrote very well and the idea that I would treat this ever like a sort of annoying day job where I would moan about it all the time <laughs> would, would be a disservice to his dream he never got to have. I mean, it's, mm. you know, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing to be a writer. I mean, it's mm. also, as I say, annoying and difficult, but it always has to be when you're actually doing the writing, something yeah. that you're actually loving, I think.
0: Well, that sort of moves us to what I wanted to ask you as well about We All Hear Stories in the Dark, which is a lot of writing. There's a lot of writing in, in this, this set of books, Rob. Could you tell us all just a little bit more about the sheer, not just ambitious scope, it's it's just a massive set of it's sort of a, a, a triptych? Yes,
1: it's, it's sort of, I mean,
0: it's, it's a triptych by mistake. I mean,
1: the, the idea of it is that I wanted to write a a book of short stories, which would try and do tons of different things so that as you read the book, you couldn't be sure whether you'd be getting adventure stories or comedies or horror stories or whatever, but you'd be choosing a route through them. So I wanted to do a sort of a huge Arabian Nights type book, but as a choose an adventure. And I didn't realize quite how long that would take and that it would end up being a book which is longer than War and Peace. But the idea of it really is that a man has lost his wife and she was a great reader and in a, in a sort of fit of jealousy because he gets so angry at the books that she wasted her time with and he, she could have spent that time with him. He burns all of her books and then feels this tremendous loss but that one connecting thread that actually kept her happy is now being um, got rid of. And he finds a way in which he actually reads in two and a half weeks, every single book in the world. <sighs> because there is a method to it, which is that reading everything is extremely easy if you find the right order and everybody has a different right order to read something. And having read all the books in the world, he finds in the back of the library, there is an old woman sitting in the dark and she has the final 101 stories in existence. And she will read them to him at the end of every single one of those stories. She will give him a series of five questions about his response to that story which will determine which story he gets to read next. And there's only one path, which takes you through all 101 stories without going back on yourself. And if you find it, the man Mm. gets his wife back from the dead. It's not a sort of modern Scheherazade thing, but in fact, she is Scheherazade, but it's it's a means of trying to say to the reader, let's actually make your response to stories a deeply questioned and personal thing. So that, I mean, what's fun about writing the book is that you begin to work out quite quickly that the mathematical odds against anybody reading the same book twice are actually larger than the number of grains of sand on the earth. As you read we all hear stories in the dark, you become more and more aware that the, the sort of deeper into the maze you go, that the way that these stories are bouncing off each other is only your experience. No one else will ever have the same experience. And it's, directly personal to your own reactions, so it's about you as a reader as well and I thought that would be a fun idea (laughs) and I thought that would take me maybe two or three years it took me about nine and I didn't think it would also also because I'm very bad at maths I mean the stories are about six and a half thousand words each on average so obviously that's about 650,000 words (sighs) I didn't quite work that out when I was doing it so when it got published, it had to be put into three volumes. Um, otherwise, it would be too <laughs> heavy to, to carry around. But it's, I mean, I'm, I'm very proud of it. It's, it. it's such a funny book, I hope. I mean, people, I, I think the joy of it for me is that, because I love writing short stories, but I always worry a little bit that the short story experience always feels a little bit fade. To some people mm-hmm. and I think short stories are incredibly robust and exciting things but people read them very much as if they're sort of quite delicate flowers.
0: Mm-hmm. The
1: idea of saying this is actually a huge undertaking and this is your own personal adventure through the idea of storytelling means that people actually have own sort of adventures. I mean what I find is fun is that on Twitter people write to me again every day I get this it's lovely strangers write to me sending me their own journey plans and I find that great I mean people Mm. way through through the maze it's fun I mean it's it's hopefully a very fun experience for people
0: I mean Rob it sort of blows my mind as a a reader but as a writer I've got no sense of how you would even begin to write it you know to build it just mechanistically I mean how did you do that
1: I didn't know how to do it it took me about a year to work out the maze because the the problem with the maze is that every single story has to have about nine connecting points to other stories, which you may or may not ever read. So that you have to have five stories which go from every story to another story, but also therefore five different stories which bring you into it. Constructing that maze was, yeah, it took a very long time and I couldn't really do it until I'd written about two thirds of the story. So the first few years of the book, were just taken writing stories and hoping that they'd make the cut and then about that point I began to say I have enough now that I can work out where the connecting threads might start to come and working out as a result what was actually really missing and then having finished the first draft of it then realizing that about say 20 of the stories no longer fitted because I didn't know what the book's themes would be until I'd written a lot of them Mm -hmm. and it's a book about grief which is it seems very obvious from the actual preamble, but it wasn't obvious to me so much until I'm mean, writing it. My uh, parents died as I was writing it,
0: mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And,
1: I mean, which is, you know, just par for the course, I suppose, but it was about that process.
0: Mm-hmm. And I
1: wanted to write a book which is therefore always sort of kind of bouncing off similar themes and points. I sort of had to, I mean, the oddest thing about it is that I don't understand remotely how that maze could have been constructed but it, I could only do it by finding out bit by bit. I, th- I, mean, I think it would have been impossible to construct at the beginning. And by the end of it, it would have been impossible because I'd actually, at that stage, written myself into various corners. I mean, I, I, I have notebooks full of ways of trying to sort of just draw lines between different stories and things. It, it was quite hard just to write the stories, to yeah, be honest.
0: Yeah it's
1: also fun, it was, it was great fun to do
0: So it sort of sounds like the only way out was through after you got sort of into it, you had to write your, your own way back out of it Yeah, yeah absolutely
1: and, 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 you, and you start realising and then that's also when you start factoring in the actual gameplay and you start putting in stories and chapters which you can only read if you cheat uh-huh. so there are stories about the dangers of cheating in mazes <laughs> whereas if you find the story it tells you off and there's one story which is made up of 101 different stories because sometimes <laughs> has want to hide stories within stories and and and, and there are little essay bits which you hide elsewhere and, it's, and it became this sort of thing where, where I wanted it to be a sort of a fairly magical thing. I mean if you just flick through the book there are pages which you can't get to unless you find them which kind of sort of goad you on and give you sort of little hints and things and I, I, I just wanted to create, I mean, it was odd, I, I think it was, it was inspired in part, it's a, it's a funny thing really, I was reading Jane Eyre back in my late 30s and realising that I didn't like it very much and being annoyed at myself because I knew I would have loved it if I'd read it in my teens and I was obvious I was just reading it now in the wrong order and it, and it made me feel really scared to realise that stories aren't these sort of fixed finite things that mm-hmm. if you don't read Moby Dick at the right time to read Moby Dick, its charms and wisdom will be lost on you. Because if you read it too early, you will understand. If you read it too late, you'll be bored of it. And so realising that stories have their moment and their place, otherwise they are lost to you forever. It's about what this book is trying to be. It's trying to say some of these stories palpably will not work for you. And in fact, some of them will offend you, some of them will bore you. But 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 But, but from that reaction, you can you can go in a, down a, a different path because you acknowledge that. And it was just trying to sort of engage with the idea that as someone who collects books and recognizes that I've got so many children's books now, which I don't think I'm actually ever going to, I, I tried this in lockdown. I thought it'd be wonderful to go and just read some of those children's classics because I'm, you know, I'm stressed and I'm in a house and I, I've had COVID and I just, they just seem too basic. And I thought, but I'd have been so charmed by this if I read it, too wild. and yeah. now it just annoys me. Yeah. And it, it's, that, it's that sense of loss that even we have them on the shelves and, and we're still losing narratives and things. So I was yes. trying, trying to do a book which was actually really about that experience of grabbing the stories that you want as you get them.
0: Mm. That's it. I was just about to say exactly that, that sense of loss, of the opportunity missed to really put your love there. But, but the moment's gone. But you're never quite the same... You never read the same book twice, in a sense, either. I don't think, because a lot, you know, as a, as a reader, you bring all your own sort of stuff to it, don't you? Absolutely right. And and
1: and, and no, I mean, there's actually a there is a page in the book which says it. I mean, there's a page which says, "Remember that no story read twice ever reads the same," because mm-hmm. that's also the case. I mean, because what you're reading is framed not only by your own experiences but also by what you've just read before. I mean, it, it is actually rather like eating tastes get affected by the after effect of taste from from your previous meal mm-hmm. and i think that's actually what makes it so such such an incredible thing i mean I, it, it always takes reading and indeed art out of the hands and of the power of the artist it makes every single thing its own sort of personal universe that anybody can explore and make their own. I mean, all that We All Historians in the Dark is doing is actually saying that this is true for every single thing you ever read. I've just read Hamnet, I thought that was wonderful. Mm. I'm also aware that the Hamnet I was reading wasn't the same as the Hamnet other people were reading. Um, And particularly because I was reading it at a time of lockdown and and there, there are plague references, that will have a different effect, but also upon, at that stage, how I'm coping With the pandemic. Mm
0: -hmm. The idea
1: that Maggie O'Farrell could have even possibly guessed that when she wrote it, and of course she didn't, takes it away from her and makes it purely about my own response. And Hamlet is a great book, I think, and I think it'll be read for many, many decades to come, when people have I think, collectively agreed to try and forget about the pandemic, and then it will go back to being something which isn't about the pandemic, Mm -hmm. and that is just as valid a response. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what I think, you know, I, th- I think that's a really, a really personal stake. I think in the way that we do approach reading anything, and the way that we react to it.
0: I mean, I, I was thinking that, with we all hear stories in the dark, the that sense of collective, I'm sure a lot of people read Hamnet at this time. I also did and admired it enormously. But that collective experience is gone when there are so many enormous sort of per- number of permutations. You know, no two- You said yourself, no two people will ever read the same book. No as each other. Do you, are you able as the architect to have an ideal, or not an ideal, but your own favourite route through the book or is that not a possible thing?
1: I, I don't, I actually in a funny way really not. I mean people have often, people, someone wrote to me this week private message pleading with me to let them, to tell them what, what the main <laughs> answer is because it is, it is hidden in the book. I mean there is actually the uh, solution to how to read it in, in one order is somewhere hidden as a, as a Series of numbers in the book, but it's not the right way to read it. It's simply mm-hmm. the way that I found to do it. And because I wrote the book in a completely different order to how it's being read, I find it very strange because sometimes I flick through the book and I know that the stories are there, which I wrote in 2011, and some stories I wrote in the last month or two before it went to editors where I got another idea for a story, and this is up to the minute. And yet they sit side by side. And to the reader, I wrote them at the same time. But they're completely different versions of me. And, and they're versions of me who aren't framed by the same grief, because they're all stories about grief in part. But some of them are written before I lost my dad. and Some are written mm-hmm. after Some are written in the, in the wake of that. So I suppose the ideal order for me would be to, if, I, if, if I read them chronologically. But I can no longer remember the order in which I wrote them. Um, mm-hmm. I've got all my first draft notebooks but they're all out of order and out of sequence. Mm-hmm. And I just can't tell. I think that that's part of the magic of it is that for me the order in which I did them is an order which is being denied the reader anyway because I just don't know anymore. <laughs>
0: I think that would drive completists. I can see why someone's in your, in your DMs, private messages, sort of saying, please, please help me because... Well, yeah, I mean, I, and, and, and there is
1: actually an element. I mean, I know people who have gone back to fill in all the gaps, but I think that part of what's fun about the book, and I've, and I've told some people have actually been quite annoyed by stories that they rejected. And I <laughs> said, you did reject them. I mean, you did specifically mm. not go down that path. There's, for example, a very, very dark path in the book, and it keeps on warning you not to take it. No. you read a dark story, says you can go darker if you want, but why bother? And eventually yeah. you get to some very, very dark stories, which most people sensibly have long ago not bothered going Discarded. down that path.
0: Oh,
1: or, yeah. If you try and fill in the gaps, you'll find things that you may not want to read. But, and I think part of the joy of literature, as much as this book, of course, is in what we choose not to read. The fact that you can't read everything and shouldn't read everything, and you'd say to yourself, you know what, I'm not going to read any more Charles Dickens. You simply say one day, I've read about half a dozen and I've enjoyed them, but maybe I'm never going to read The Old Curiosity Shop. Maybe I'll take that one to my grave. And sometimes that's <laughs> quite freeing. When I was a teenager, I got suddenly obsessed by Thomas Hardy because he was the first proper writer
0: mm-hmm.
1: I, I just on a whim thought I was going to try reading great books and I read Tess of the D'Urbervilles and loved it and so read all 13 of his other novels Oh no! and I killed them. I mean I, mean, I, oh. I still love a lot of them but some of them In the Hand of Ethelbert is a terrible book and, <laughs> yeah. and the idea that I couldn't have saved them up rather saddens me. I mean I, I wish I had a Thomas Hardy now to I read, have to go book. to yeah, and so there is a certain sense in which we always sort of taking a gamble about things like that. There's always that sense of saying, I mean, I don't want to give up Charles Dickens, but I do like the idea that I haven't read all Charles Dickens. That maybe on my deathbed, that's when I can read our mutual friend. Yeah, and 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 the gamble you take is maybe you'll get knocked over by a car, and, and as you're lying there in the road, you'll be thinking, I should have read our mutual friend. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually spoiled it now, but, he, but that's always the way in which these things work. I mean, because you can't take everything in, it's about that wonderful sense of choice. I, I find, I mean, I, I finished a novel last night, Stoner by John Williams. Oh, I, I love,
0: love that. that novel. Oh yes. Uh-huh.
1: So good. Beautiful. And to mm. finishing, it was also accompanied by a sense of, I've got to choose another novel now.
0: Nothing will come and close. Yes. Yeah.
1: And, and that's try again. It, I think there's an excitement about, about the, the, the realisation that there is so much choice out there. Mm. Um, that always keeps me going. It's always that sort of hint of the shadow of, of the next book to read. Yes. It always you know, um, excites me and always can get me going so much also during the last year.
0: Yeah, I bet. Yeah, it's the it's the it's always the hope of finding the next favorite or the book. The yeah. next book might be the life changing one. I I, I I have that too. Rob, I could speak to you for I sense all evening about this, but I, I did want to um, let you have an evening, but also a couple of quick fire yes, questions, if I may, uh, just off off all the, all the of all the books. I mean, which would be your desert island book? Do you think that you would you know on, on desert island discs and you're allowed the Bible and Shakespeare and so forth? What yeah. do you think you would take? Given the choice, that's not those.
1: Um, I'm tempted to go suddenly for the Gormenghast trilogy, mm-hmm. Irvine mm-hmm. Peake. So I haven't read them in ages, and I felt and I think they're endlessly fascinating. Oh, I could read Middlemarch again. Mm-hmm. I love Middlemarch. I mean, maybe that's the best novel ever written. That would be something I would never get bored of. See, something like that maybe. Mm-hmm. It's hard, isn't it? Because it the idea, hard. because even the idea of being stuck with one book which one day you'll get bored of. I mean, it's like when you fall in love with someone and, and, and then you imagine yourself 15, 20 years down the road, having ironed out all the excitement of being... Is, sorry, that's such a miserable thing to say. <laughs> in some ways, it'd be quite nice not to take a book that I would spoil through rereading it.
0: Yeah.
1: I, I wouldn't want to kill Middlemarch by reading it every day until the rest of my life. Yes, I, Bored of it eventually. Oh, what a terrible thing to be bored of! Middle oh,
0: Middle. terrible! Show me a man who is bored of Middlemarch yeah. and etc.
1: I ought to choose a book which I don't much like. Yes, which, which which maybe eventually I would come. Perhaps I'll choose. I'll tell you what. I'm going to choose Tristram Shandy, the book that I ought to like but don't. There we go. Maybe eventually I'll grow to like it.
0: <laughs> you you have plenty of time to to get there at least if you were on a desert island. Yes. Um, this is, this is just my last question now, Rob, and it's come via our mutual friend, Stuart Kelly. Uh-huh. Um, and it's, if you could bring back a Doctor Who monster, which one would it be?
1: Oh, that's, that's hard. Actually, I, I think I know, when I was at the height of my obsession, when I was 12, 13 years old, during the Peter Davison run, my favourite stories still, actually, are the ones written by a chap called Christopher Bailey, and he created this sort of strange mental monster called the Mara, which was not, you know, it, it was a, it was a strange sort of elemental idea of evil which would just take people over, and I mean, it, it was very odd. Um, and those are gorgeous scripts, and although it would be awful if anyone else ever wrote them, because they feel so personal to that writer, I'd bring back the Mara. I mean that that was the one that spoke to me the most and that's not been done by anybody else. So that's my answer.
0: Thanks so much to Rob Shearman. Dalek is out next week and you can buy it and the amazing We All Hear stories in the dark from your favourite independent bookshop. And we couldn't recommend A Better Course of Action. That's all from us for now. Don't forget to explore wigtownbookfestival.com for the latest news of what's coming up and a gorgeous archive of what's been. Thank you so much for listening. Take good care of yourselves. Until the next time.